All right, let's read the passage this morning again. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. I'll be reading 18 through 23. Relatively short passage. Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So again, last week we looked at verses 10 through 17 of chapter 3, uh, as we, uh, Paul continued that metaphor of a church building, the church being a building. You see that in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. And then from verse 10 to 17, he continues this building metaphor, describing the work and the ministry of the apostles, and then by extension, uh, pastors and teachers and elders in the church, um, that, that work of, of constructing a building. You're laying a foundation and others come along and they build upon it. So he describes his own labors as that as a wise master builder or a wise architect, one who comes and lays a foundation. And then he says others come along and they build on that foundation. But he says all of us, All of us need to take heed how you build on that foundation. He calls the foundation Christ. Christ is that foundation, or the message of the cross, the gospel, is the foundation upon which the church is built. And so you have to be careful. You have to take heed how you build on that. What materials do you use? And he describes these materials here as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And the reason you have to take heed is because there is only one foundation, and that is Jesus Christ and the gospel. Any any construction you're making that is not built on that foundation is not a church. You may have the word church in the name, but it is not a church if it is not built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, like I said, the rest of the passage examines how to build on that foundation, what materials are used. And a church can be built with Imperishable materials, gold, hay, or gold, silver, precious stone, uh, imperishable or spiritual materials, or it can be built with perishable or fleshly materials. That's the wood, the hay, and the straw. And he says, however you build on that foundation, says the day will judge that. The day will judge that, and that's the day of the return of Christ. The day will judge our works. And those who have built with material, uh, perishable materials, their works will go up in the flames, right? The test is a test by fire. And if you built with wood, hay, and straw, those things are, of course, highly flammable and they just go right up in the flames. But if you build with gold, silver, precious stones, those things will stand the test of fire. And of course, all of this is to determine our reward. Now, again, remember, we have to understand, it's like the idea of being rewarded is not that somehow what we do puts God in our debt. We need to understand that. What we do does not put God in our debt. God is in debt to no man. 
But God graciously rewards our labors because even our best works are going to be tainted with sin, right? Even our best, the holiest of men, the catechism says, even the most holiest of men have begun just a small beginning in the holiness that God requires. But God is gracious and he condescends to reward our works even though um, they are not worthy of that kind of reward. He over-rewards them, really, if you want to be honest. And then finally, that passage ends with a dire warning from Paul to not defile, to not destroy the temple of God, um, using that language of a temple and then um, defiling it. You know, we looked at how uh, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they went in and they had no regard for God's holiness and they defiled the temple and God struck them down. The church is the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells within the church. We'll see later in 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit dwells within each believer as well. And if what we do then destroys or defiles the temple of God, God will destroy us. That's how the passage last week ends. So as we come into this passage this morning, Paul's going to bring this discussion now. He's bringing it back around to the discussion on wisdom and folly. He's bringing it back around to the discussion on wisdom and folly. And just a brief reminder again, you know, because we've been looking at this, this is the 10th lesson, I counted, the 10th lesson in 1 Corinthians, and we're just finishing chapter 3. But remember, from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 4, Paul is still dealing with one main issue. What's that one main issue? What's that? Well, sin, but what particular sin was going on in Corinth? Divisions in the church. All of this is on, on the discussion and the topic of divisions in the church. So Paul brings us back around to this idea of divisions in the church. How divisions exhibit a fleshly or a carnal way of thinking. How divisions are based on worldly or fleshly ideas. The ideas that would have been prominent in the city of Corinth that where the church was. How divisions are contrary to the wisdom of God and demonstrate a true foolishness. And that's what Paul's point is going to be here in verses 18 through 23. He's going to show us here in these brief verses the folly of human wisdom. And it's folly because human wisdom is self-defeating. And it fails to grasp one very basic, simple truth that is in Christ, everything is ours. Everything is ours and we are Christ. That's the point here of these verses. Everything is ours and we are Christ. So it's foolish to divide over what is ours. Right? You know, if everything is ours, it's foolish to, to divide over that. So as we look first at verse 18, Paul's going to tell us here how in order to be wise, we have to become foolish. In verse 18, it says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, I'm emphasizing that for a reason, if you seem to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, implied in the, of this age, that he may become wise. So after, coming, after, uh, after that warning that he gives in verse 17, uh, Paul here now gives us a reality check in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. Don't lie to yourselves. Don't fool yourselves. Don't be self-deceived. 
And think of how easy it can be at times to be self-deceived, right? When you set your heart on something and you really, really want it so bad, and you don't listen to any advice anyone else is giving you how don't pursue that, that's bad, and you, you, you're, you're locked in on something, and you can deceive yourself, and you end up becoming a fool because of that. It's very easy to sort of get tunnel vision and lose our focus on everything else. That's what Paul's saying. Don't get sort of this kind of spiritual tunnel vision on the teachers in the church because that's foolishness. Don't deceive yourself in this manner. Again, consider how Satan tempted Eve in the garden, right? The first thing he says to her is, did God really say? <laughs> right? So the first thing he says to Eve is after, you know, presumably she and Adam got a command, a verbal command from God, don't eat of, you know, you can eat of all the trees except this one tree. And Satan said, did God really say that? Did God, re-? of course he twisted to, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? You know, that's how he gets her, he gets her focused on that. Adam and Eve, right, in the garden had access to everything except the one tree. They had access to the entire range of what the garden could provide except for that one tree. And then Satan said, why not that one tree? And then she got tunnel vision. Why not that one tree? What's God holding back from me? I, now I want that tree. She was self-deceived. And then worse, Adam became self-deceived as well. Satan deceived Eve into focusing on what she didn't have, and she lost focus of everything that she actually did have. And that's what self-deception is. So Paul here says, about what then are we to avoid being self-deceived? And we are to, be, to avoid being self-deceived regarding the value of human wisdom. Paul warns those of the Corinthian church who seem to be wise in this age. Right? If any of you seems to be wise in this age. In other words, to be wise in this age Self-deceived. It is to be self-deceived. Now Paul will give the reason why in verse 19, but consider how Paul continues to highlight how he's been highlighting all throughout 1 Corinthians this sort of dichotomy, this sort of two ways of looking at things, right? This age and the age to come. He says, don't be deceived by considering yourself wise in this age. In this age. And if you age pertains to everything that's happening now in the world. The age is what will come when Christ returns. That is the heavenly age, the spiritual age. Right now, this is a worldly, fleshly age. It's an evil age as we see in other places. But the wisdom of this age, that's all that the Greek mind, and that's what controlled the thoughts, uh, and that was sort of like the prevailing philosophy in Corinth. The Greek mind was all concerned wisdom of this age. Who's teaching the new thing now? The novel? The what, you know, who is the latest philosopher out there? That we and what is most is the wisdom of this age? Well, it is an anti-God uh, wisdom. The wisdom of this age seeks to learn and seek knowledge from God. And the world 
without any reference to the Creator. Okay, that's in a sense what you think about that from a biblical perspective. What you're really doing there is you're trying to learn about the world, but you're kicking the foundation out from under you. The foundation is that God created it all. God gave it its, gave it its being, gave it its and to ignore God and all that, you're just kicking the foundation out from any source of knowledge. You're trying to build a structure in midair. You're trying to build a structure on a foundation of sand. To use an illustration, I'm going to pick on the men a little bit here. Men, how many, how many times have you tried to put together something without the aid of the manufacturer's instructions? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All the time, right? So, I mean, obviously we know how to put together that 1,000-piece bookcase from Ikea, right? I don't need the manufacturer's instructions. I can do it on my own. I did that once. I built a desk, and the desk, the, fate, the front plate of the, one of the drawers was backwards because I didn't read <laughs> And I didn't bother changing. It's like, screw it. <laughs> I'm the only one who's using this desk. Who cares? <laughs> The wisdom of this age tries to make sense of the world without the Creator who gives this world meaning and purpose. There's a word for that. What would that word be? Begins with an F, ends with ish. (laughs) Foolish. (laughs) Or begins with F and ends with oolish. (laughs) The pride of self-righteousness. The pride and self-righteousness of the world is on full display as we see in Isaiah, Isaiah 5.21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. In the Psalms, the Bible says, it is the fool who says in his heart, what? There is no God. That's foolish. The, thing, the moment you start to deny the existence of God in this world, you are a fool in the eyes of God. Yet that is what the wisdom of this age is characterized by. There is no God, and they thus rejects the very one who gives wisdom. Because what's the foundation of wisdom, according to Proverbs? The fear of God. Not necessarily only being scared of Him, but a reverent respect and a healthy fear of the Lord is the beginning. That's the beginning of wisdom. Yet the fool says there is no God. Thus the unbeliever is left to be wise in his own eyes. And oh, how the world thinks it is so wise. Right? How they think that they can, you know, you Christians, you're so backwards, you believe in your silly little book, and you believe in your little sky wizard and all these things. How foolish you are. You don't know that there are, you know, obviously don't you know that there are 73 genders out there? I mean, that's what the science is saying. And obviously, I mean, you you're foolish, you know, Christians, and all, you know, it's like, you know, we, all these things, all these things, right? The unbelieving world is quite bold and confident that it doesn't need God to explain things. I remember reading about how when Darwin's theory of evolution became popular, one atheist said, now, finally, you can be an intellectually satisfied atheist, because now we have an explanation that doesn't involve God as to how everything got to be here. So now, you know, and, and it just gives them boldness and it gives them a, a sense of self-deception. So Paul's warning here is that if you sense yourself 
thinking yourself wise in this age, he says you need to become a fool. You need to become a fool in the idea of, you know, in, in respect to the wisdom of this age. The idea of becoming a fool is becoming fool, a fool to the wisdom of this age. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do that by proclaiming and believing the message of the cross, right? The gospel. The gospel is the wisdom of God, right? It is the wisdom of God to those who are being saved, yet it is foolishness to the world. That's what Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians. So you need to be a fool in the world's eyes in order to be truly wise. That's Paul's point. In Proverbs 3, verse 7, Solomon says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Proverbs 3, 7. And the cross of Christ, of course, the gospel, is foolishness to the world. But it is true wisdom to those of us who are being saved. Again, that's Paul's point that he makes earlier in chapter 1. So now moving on to uh, verses 19 and 20, Paul gives us the reason why we should become fools to the world. If you look in verses 19 and 20, he says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So the basic reason is because the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. That's why you need to become a fool to the wisdom of this world, because it is foolishness with God. It's exact, again, this exact same thing Paul says in chapter 1, verse 20, in chapter 1, verse 25. The foolishness of God is still far wiser than the, than the wisdom, uh, the best of man's wisdom. The weakness of God is still far stronger than the best of man's strength. And if you take a moment here to consider uh, the statement here that Paul makes, it is actually quite profound in a way. Because if you think about it, it's like, what does he say here? The wisdom of this world is foolishness, foolishness with God. And just to break that down a bit, think about that. All of the accumulated wisdom, all of the accumulated knowledge of the his, in the history of this world is foolishness to God. I mean, even, even the most conservative estimates of mankind have uh, that the mankind has been puttering around on this globe for anywhere between six to 10,000 years, the most conservative estimates. And all of the wisdom of these millennia is nothing before God. That's what Paul is saying here. Think of all the advances mankind has made over the centuries. Uh, the most conservative estimate is that the body of human knowledge is doubling every 13 months just every over every just a little bit over every year our base of knowledge doubles that's an enormous rate of knowledge that is an enormous rate of the increase of knowledge just over a year from now right in january 2023 our knowledge will have doubled will have doubled but if you remember a question i asked a few weeks ago has any of this knowledge brought us closer to God? Exactly. Ever learning and never being able to come to the knowledge of the truth. All of the accumulated wisdom of the world that is without God has not brought us any closer to God. It has not cured the, the, the disease of sin. It has not been able to make us righteous before God. 
That's why the wisdom of this world is really foolishness in God's eyes. It is a wisdom that, as Paul says elsewhere, as you just quoted, 2 Timothy 3.7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's like, forget which, which poet, if it was Dante's Inferno or, or Milton's Paradise Lost, I can't remember. But there's one level in hell, according to this, this poet, where there's a wall, and, and you're trying to get to the wall. <laughs> and the closer you get to the wall, you never quite reach it. All right, you're always ever getting, you know, that's kind of like always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth, right? Or the ancient Greek paradox, right? Zeno's paradox. Anybody heard of Zeno's paradox? Okay. Zeno's paradox is that between any two points, there's an infinite number of points, right? If you divide it in half, you can then divide that in half, you can then divide that in half, and you can do that, theoretically, for infinity, which means that if you took, if I started at the pulpit and walked to that door and I just went half the distance each time, theoretically, I would never get to the door. I would never be able to leave the church. I would just be stuck here. That's why I would need my tunnel to get from the pulp behind the pulpit to my house. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the idea. Always learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. All this knowledge, and it is not made us any better toward each other, right? Sometimes it seems like our knowledge far outpaces our wisdom to use what we've learned in this world, right? So to support his point, Paul quotes from two Old Testament passages. The first one is found in Job 5, verse 13. So Paul supports his point by quoting two Old Testament passages. Again, the first one being Job 5, verse 13. Well, you don't necessarily need to turn there. They're in the 1 Corinthians passage, too. <laughs> I'm just going to turn to read the original context. But in Job 5.13, this is um, so this is Eliphaz, one of Job's quote unquote friends, counseling him. And in verse 13, he says, of the Lord. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. And then in Psalm 94, verse 11, psalmist here, we don't know who it is, talks about the thoughts of man. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. So again, in the Job passage, we see one of Job's friends, uh, Eliphaz, speaking to Job about the wonders of God. And one of these things that we see is that God is able to catch the wise in their own craftiness. Have you ever seen a person who's too clever for his own good? <laughs> I grew up watching Warner Brothers cartoons, and that kind of perfectly describes the coyote trying to catch the roadrunner. Little too wise for his own good. He makes all these schemes to try to catch the coyote. And for whatever reason, he always falls into his own trap. Right? That's what God is saying. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. We are the coyote. <laughs> right? And he catches us in our own craftiness. 
Think of all the times in the Proverbs or in the Psalms where you see the, the wicked set a trap and then they fall into it themselves. Or the wicked are rolling a boulder up a hill and then the boulder rolls back down on them. It's almost like a cartoon, like the coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons. But that is exactly how God catches the, the, cra- the, the wise in their own craftiness. The wise devise their schemes thinking they can escape or avoid the justice and notice of God, but then they end up falling in their own trap. And the same thing in the Psalm 94 passage. The psalmist cries out to God for vengeance and vindication. And the wicked who afflict the psalmist think God doesn't see what they're doing. Right? How many times have you seen that, right? You know, someone's like, well, I'm going to do something. Nothing happens to me. Therefore, God must not care. He's not watching. So I'm getting away with this. Are you really getting away with it? No. You're not really getting away with it. The wicked who afflict the psalmist think God does not see what they're doing because they appear to be successful. But then God does see, God does hear, and He knows the thoughts of man that all of their scheming is futile. And that's the point Paul wants to make. The reason why you need to become foolish amongst those who think they're wise of this age is because the wisdom of this age, the people who think they're wise of this age think they have figured it all out, but in the end, God has made their wisdom and all of their thinking futile, of nothing. It is vanity. So again, the accumulated wisdom of this age can never and will never lead people to the age to come. Right? The only way to get from this age to the age to come is to be a fool to this age, to be a fool to the wisdom of this age, and embrace the foolishness of the message of the cross. God has measured the wisdom of this age and has found it wanting. Sort of like what the handwriting on the wall will say in Daniel 5 when we get there, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, right? You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found lacking. You've been found wanting. So now, in our last part of this passage here, verses 21 to 23, you have a therefore in verse 21. So not only does therefore point us back to what Paul has said, but it also signals that he is coming to a conclusion, to an argument here. And it's really kind of the argument of chapter 3 as a whole. So in verse 21, Paul says, Therefore, let no one boast in men. That's the conclusion. I'm going to, I'll read the rest of it later. But let no one boast in men or people. Because that's what the wisdom of this age would do. Right? That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were boasting in men. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. They are boasting in men. That's what the wisdom of this age does. Because they feel you are somebody if you follow somebody. Right? I follow so-and-so. Therefore, he's someone. That makes me someone too. That makes me someone special because I'm, I follow this person. We don't boast. I mean, we don't boast in men in the 21st century now, do we? Yeah, we kind of do. We do boast in men, even in the 21st century. I mean, the cult of personality is just as strong today as it was in first century Corinth. Right? We boast in celebrities. Oh, well, did you hear what so-and-so said? You hear what Mariah, I know Mariah Carey is kind of older now, but 
you know, that's just, I'm just aging myself. <laughs> Did you hear what Mariah Carey said? Or, oh, did you hear what, what Matt Damon said? Or, you know, I just, you know, it's like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? You know, you want to say just shut up and act or shut up and say, who cares what they say? But we boast in celebrities or we boast in politicians or we boast in athletes. There, there's a group to boast in. It's like, let's follow their wisdom. I mean, I mean there may be a, a very teeny tiny small handful of athletes that are actually able to put a sentence together. Um, I mean, we hang on every word, every deed that these famous people say and do, and they sort of become our de facto authorities, right? They become the people that we follow. I mean, think of how, you know, they boast, you know, on Twitter or Twitch or Instagram, how many millions of followers or tens of millions of followers these people have. And then they, you know, and because you can... Because we all know that in 280 characters, you can say all kinds of wise things, right? You know, you can make all, all kinds of fleshed out, full arguments in 280 characters or less, right? So they spot out some stupid little nonsense, you know, snippet, and it's like, and then they get all the likes and the clicks and all that stuff, right? Well, that's what the people in the world do. I mean, but in the church, certainly, we do not have a cult of personality in the church, Right? I mean, we're immune to that, right? No, even in the church. Let's just take a small snippet here ever since the Protestant Reformation. So I'm only going back, what is that, 400, 500 years? I'm only going back 500 years. And we've seen movements and denominations that are named after famous reformers, right? We have what, there's a church just down the street here. It's called what? A Lutheran church, right? You have Calvinists, you have Wesleyans, you know, people, you know, within the sphere of the Reform. Think of how we venerate John Calvin or other Reformed theologians. Calvin said, or Spurgeon said, or you know, name name a famous, you know, Knox said. I think there are even within our circles a mindset that's almost sort of like this. Calvin said it. I believe it. That settles it. And I think if John Calvin heard that, he would be rolling in his grave. <laughs> and so would Martin Luther. And so would John Wesley. And so would Charles Spurgeon. And so would John Knox. And so would all these guys. Why are you following me? I'm a servant. That's what Paul says earlier in the chapter. We are servants. We are servants. I love John Calvin. I love his contribution to Reformed theology. It's incalculable. But he's not infallible. It's okay to disagree with him. There are some people like, if you disagree with John, you're disagreeing with John Calvin. It's like, and? Did any of his works make it in this? No? Okay. Then I think we can disagree with them. It's not, it's not a sin to disagree with John Calvin. It's not a sin to disagree with Martin Luther or any of these guys. And again, I think they would be appalled that people go around calling themselves Lutherans and Calvinists and Wesleyans. And then that's people from 500 years ago. How about today? You know, who's, who's the biggest reform guy that you could think of in the last 50 years? R.C. Sproul. 
If we went around calling ourselves Sprolians, what do you think he'd be doing? He would come out of heaven, come down and say, what is wrong with you people? He was famous for saying that. He said that to a group of people one time. What is wrong with you people? (laughs) Or MacArthur or any of these guys. Paul says, let no one boast in men. Why? Because all things are yours. That's what makes divisions so foolish in the church. So kind of this age way of thinking. Why divide over church leaders? Because they are all ours. (laughs) Why would you divide over that? They they all belong to the church. That's what Paul's saying. Paul belongs to the church. Apollos belongs to the church. Cephas or Peter belongs to the church. John Calvin belongs to the church. R.C. Sproul belongs to the church. Why would you do that? God gave the church all of these gifted individuals to build and to instruct and to help edify the people of God. They are all ours. And in the case of the church in Corinth, God gave them Paul, He gave them Apollos, and He gave them Peter. Paul came and planted the church. He laid the foundation. Apollos came later and he built on that foundation. Peter came later and he built on that foundation. And they built upon the gospel foundation which Paul had laid. So to say, I am of Paul, is then to take too narrow a view of the church. Because Paul said earlier, the one who lays the foundation, or the one, I should say the one who plants and the one who waters, using a different metaphor, we are one. In the sense that our goal is one. Our calling is one. We serve one Lord. It's it's not like we're competing against each other. So to say I am of Paul is to take too narrow a view. I'm Calvin. I'm of Calvin. Or I'm of Spurgeon. That's too narrow a view. As great as Paul was to the church, even he is not the be-all and end-all of the church. Could Paul have been wrong? I mean, not in his, you know, not in the, the letters in the, in the works that he wrote that are in Scripture, but he wrote other letters, right? When we looked at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we said that he probably wrote his up, up to four letters to the church in Corinth. Two of them are preserved in Scripture, the other two are not. Could he have been wrong in those letters? In some of them, he said, I wrote a little harshly. <laughs> You know, and the men, we've been looking at the book of Acts and when uh, they, Paul and Barnabas get ready to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, I got my cousin John Mark here. He wants to come with us again. And Paul's like, no, send that loser away. He he abandoned us before. Why would I want to hitch my wagon to to someone who would abandon us later? Now God used that because then Barnabas went one way, Paul went another way, but Could Paul maybe have been a little harsh toward John Mark in that instance? Maybe. You know, Peter sinned, right? Paul rebukes him to his face in Galatians because Peter was fine and willing to hang out with the Gentiles until those from Jerusalem came down. And then he's like, "Mm, I'm going to hang out. I've got to be Jewish now. And Paul goes like, what are you doing? What is wrong with you, Peter? Stop it. These guys are not the be-all, end-all of the church either. They are gracious gifts of God to all the church, but even Paul had weaknesses and sin. 
And then Paul closes what we, what we see here in verses 22 and 23, carrying this thought that all things are ours in verses 22 and 23. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours, and your Christ and Christ is God's. Now look at all the things here that Paul includes in the all things which are ours. Right? Paul, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, death, things present, things to come. It's quite an impressive list. Seems to be all-inclusive, right? It seems then that maybe all things are all things. (laughs) You know, that there are no things that are not included in the all things. So all ministers belong to the whole church. The world belongs to us. Not the world as we see it now, but the world as it will be in the age to come. And even life and death are ours, right? Life which is given to us through uh, our union with Christ. And even death is no longer an enemy. Death is a conquered foe, right? It is a vanquished foe in Christ. Death no longer is something to be feared. Because death just brings us closer to Christ, right? And then all things present, all things to come, all of it. Now, all of it that will be coming is ours. And the reason, bless you, and the reason all of it is ours is because we belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God the Father. So the Father who created all things through His Son, Jesus Christ, gives us all things because we are in His Son, united to Christ by the Spirit and through our faith. And again, this is what makes human wisdom and divisions and the divisions that it causes so foolish. Because human wisdom cannot achieve this. Human wisdom cannot achieve the ends that we see that the gospel can achieve. And therefore, it is rendered, as Paul says, it is futile. He renders their thinking and their wisdom futile. It is useless. It is, it is worse than useless. I don't know what worse than useless would be. But whatever that is, it is, it is that's what it is. And it's worse than useless from an eternal age-to-come perspective. That's, that's the point Paul is making here. So, as we close uh, this section here, we close chapter 3, Paul just finally brings it all home here where he says, your boasting, your divisions, okay, it's foolish. It's foolish because God has given all of these things to you. Why are you splitting on this? Why do you, you know, Paul, Paulus, Cephas, they're all on team God. They're all on team Jesus, right? They're all wearing the team jerseys and they're all working for the same cause. Why are you splitting over these things as he brings this to a close? Now, he's going to continue this thought going forward, uh, even in chapter four. Like I said, this argument on the divisions in the church goes through chapter four. And next time, uh, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the first five verses of, of chapter 4. As he's now, he's going to start talking about sort of apostolic ministry. The, what the ministry really entails here. Um, but we'll break here for the morning.